1: you know i'm just old enough to have grown up a little bit with the idea of the colorful drunk and i mean the kind of drunk with three kind of ivy league sounding names who would show up at your door in a dinner jacket and begin drunkenly quoting catullus in the original latin or something people people thought that was sort of a yeah a colorful person and eccentric Uh, i'm also irish american i also began my career my first 20 years were at a daily newspaper So you can probably imagine what my relationship with alcohol has been like. And we're going to talk today about everybody's relationship with alcohol, why we crave it, how we try to diminish its impact and influence in our lives, and what else we could drink, for God's sake. Coming up on The Colin McEnroe Show.
3: My necktie's is asleep And the combo went back to New York The jukebox says to take a leak And the carpet needs a haircut
1: And the spotlight looks like a prison
3: break Cause the
0: telephones had a cigarette
1: you know, it's not that there's a Tom Waits song for every occasion, but there are Tom Waits songs, multiple Tom Waits songs for occasions like this one, because we are, in fact, going to be talking about libations today. Uh, and we're going to be talking about why we like them so much and sometimes uh, about how we may want to renegotiate our relationship with them, with alcoholic beverages. Uh, And uh, we have a tremendous lineup of guests. I'm really excited about the show, and it was a fun one to prepare for. And let's just say that maybe I didn't have to prepare quite as extensively as I do when I'm starting from scratch. Uh, But joining us now is the author of a really wonderful book uh, on this subject. Uh, Edward Slingerland uh, is the author of Drunk, How We Slipped. Oh, excuse me, sipped, danced, and stumbled our way to civilization, a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. This is a wonderful book. And I mean, it's sort of wonderful in in terms of how comprehensive it is and occasionally whimsical it is. Let me just say, if you're picking up this book and you're saying, well, I bet he doesn't know the ancient Sumerian hymn to the beer goddess, you're going to lose that bet. Uh, (laughs) And uh, so let's begin with what I think is the central uh, question of the book, which is, you know, if you look at drinking, it doesn't seem drinking alcohol. I mean, it doesn't seem like it would be adaptive from an evolutionary standpoint. Typically, traits that are passed on for thousands and thousands of years uh, in the human species are ones that create some kind of advantage for us. So how do we explain this mystery? That's what motivated the book. Um, So the central question is, why do we like
2: to drink? And the, the sort of immediate but shallow answer is because it makes us feel good. Uh, We like it because it's pleasurable. The the deeper question, though, is why does, as you noted, uh, evolution allow it to make us feel good? Because typically something that is as harmful as a taste for alcohol consumption is something that evolution would want to get rid of as quickly as possible. And yet humans have been producing and consuming alcohol for really as long as we've been doing anything in an organized fashion, Uh, thousands of years before we started agriculture. So at least probably 20,000 years, we've been producing and consuming alcohol. That's a really long time to be uh, engaging in what we've been told is just an evolutionary mistake. So I wanted to call into question this this argument, scientific argument, that it's just kind of an accident that we like to drink alcohol and explore the possibility that the costs that it imposes on us may be paid for by some benefits
1: and mention a couple of the benefits that that might be on that list
2: humans unlike any really any other animal are completely dependent on tool use on technology and that makes us dependent on innovation so we're constantly the environment changes we have to be changing our tool sets uh, we're competing with other cultural groups that maybe have better tool sets than us and uh, we need to up our game so we're really dependent on on creativity in a way that no other species is. The problem is uh, human infants, uh, well, human uh, toddlers are quite creative. So four-year-olds are very good at thinking outside the box, coming up with new ideas. Our ability to be flexible in that way, to engage in what cognitive scientists call lateral thinking, decreases as we age. So by the time you're an adult, you're actually not very good at thinking outside the box. You tend to get more rigid in your thinking. So one of the functions of alcohol that I explore in the book is to temporarily reverse this. So it uh, alcohol temporarily turns down a few notches, the prefrontal cortex part of our brain that's in charge of lots of great things, uh, staying focused on task, uh, controlling yourself, uh, delaying gratification. These are all important things to have as an adult. They interfere though with creative thinking. And so one of the functions of alcohol is to turn the prefrontal cortex down a few notches. And temporarily, at least for a few hours, long enough for Tom Waits to sing a song, um, we think we're more like four-year-olds again. We have a kind of flexibility that allows us to come up with new innovations. So creativity, enhanced creativity is certainly one of those functions.
1: Right. So we have this notion that that we also realize is uh, a slippery slope, that alcohol and creativity go hand in hand. Uh, You know, the list of writers in particular uh, who who have used alcohol, uh, perhaps to their ultimate destruction, but also to their temporary advantage is you know, it's 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 pretty close to the list of famous writers. You know, you have to take Tolstoy and a few other people off of it. Yeah. And, and yeah. And so there's that idea. And
2: Tom, Tom Waits was certainly not sober when he wrote that song.
1: No, and I'm also <laughs> I'm also thinking, you know, maybe the most legendarily in American letters might be Charles Bukowski. Let's uh, hear a little yeah. clip. This is this is uh, A two cat. This is here's here a little clip from Barfly. This is Mickey Rourke essentially as Bukowski, a character who's a, a placeholder for him anyway, and Alice Alice Kriege.
2: Why don't you stop drinking? Anybody can be a drunk. (sighs) Anybody can be a non-drunk. It takes a special talent to be
4: a drunk. It
2: takes endurance. Endurance is more important than truth.
1: I'm just going to let you react to that any way you want to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we don't. So
2: what I argue in the book is that we actually get some of these benefits at at about, they seem to really kick in at about 0.08 blood alcohol content. So that's about whatever, two, two glasses of wine, maybe for your average person. So you don't need to go to Charles Bukowski levels of um, wild abandon to get to the, the place that writers and artists and, and even, you know, people who are looking for creative breakthroughs in sciences, technology, um, those breakthroughs you can get at lower levels. So that's the, the slippery slope danger is artists uh, have traditionally all sorts of creative types of used intoxicants to get the muse to arrive, right? You need a creative breakthrough. You can't force it. It needs to come to you so we've used these substances as ways to allow this to happen but because alcohol is physically quite addictive it's right up there with with cocaine and heroin in terms of how physically addictive it is we can easily slide down the slope into um, what i think most people would agree is unhealthy levels of drinking (laughs) charles bukowski is not a, a poster child for how we should use alcohol in a responsible way
1: No, and actually there's this wonderful um, uh, quote uh, in your book that I assume is from an an ancient Greek source, although I had a little trouble unraveling that from the footnote. But uh, it's Dionysus, the god of wine, the god god of wine and drunkenness uh, is apparently speaking, saying, three cups only do I propose for sensible men, one for health the second for love and pleasure, the third for sleep. When this has been drunk up, wise guests make for home. The fourth cup is mine no longer. It belongs to hubris, the fifth to shouting, the sixth to revel, the seventh to black eyes, the eighth to summonses, the ninth to bile, the tenth to madness and people tossing the furniture about. I think we've all been on, in bars for all 10 of those classes. Um, <laughs> but he, yeah. you know, he that's the God of wine. He's still saying, sort of to your point, there's a sweet spot here, you know, yeah. and if you move beyond it, uh, you're going to lose any benefit there ever was.
2: Yeah. Dionysus is a great figure and I use him several times yes. in the book because he is a god. He's he's worshipped and celebrated, but he's also feared. Mm. He He's dangerous and he can give you a gift. I, I love the fact that he's the one who gave Midas the gift of golden touch, right? Mm-hmm. He gives you something that seems like a gift, um, but then maybe it doesn't turn out so well. So you really have to be careful about him. You need to to respect him and appreciate the gifts that he gives to us, um, but also realize that there are dangers and the dangers and that... So societies have been using alcohol for as long as, again, as we've been doing anything, but we've always been worried about alcohol for as long as we've been doing anything. You see the ancient Greeks worried about excessive consumption, the ancient Chinese, every, every culture that I know of uses alcohol, but also worries about it and typically institutes various types of cultural and ritual restraints or, or safeguards, if you want to think of it that way to help people to to use alcohol, but use it in a way where you stay at that sweet spot. You, You don't get into throwing furniture around.
1: Right. Although the sweet spot's a complicated thing too. I mean, it, it you know, it giveth and it taketh away. Uh, but I think there's, there's so many other reasons, obviously, and maybe part of the evolutionary adaptive quality is, I mean, people copulate more readily and, and less discriminatingly. <laughs> yeah.
2: They, well, there's that. Yeah. The, they, you know, beer, beer, goggles is a real thing. Right. Um, but, you know, the more broadly, it helps us to socialize. So not just thinking about uh, romantic interactions or sex. It, one of the other functions of alcohol is we are human beings are a weird primate because we're, our basic biology is, is like the chimpanzees. Um, we're, and we, you know, we used to live in these smaller t- tribes in the way our primate relatives do. And then around the time we start using alcohol, I, I think not coincidentally, we start living in these larger scale societies where we're having to interact with strangers all the time. We're having to trust other people. We're having to rely on other people And alcohol also seems to be a great tool for kind of relaxing our suspicion and our uh, worry about our inability to trust, and again, almost like getting us back to being like children again, yeah, allowing
1: let me us give to you me a, trusting of others. Let me give you a clip for that. We got a clip for everything yep. today.
0: So right, this, great.
1: <laughs> here's the Philadelphia story. Uh, James Stewart, of course, is uh, the, the, the journalist. Uh, Kerry Grant uh, is the aristocrat, uh, but alcohol seems to allow them, in just the way that you're saying, to have a more frank exchange than the ones that they've been having.
4: C.K. Dexter Haven.
1: Oh, C.K. Dexter Haven! What's up? You are. I only hope it's worth it. Come on in. I bring you greetings. Cinderella's Slipper. It's called champagne. Champagne is a great
4: leveler. Leveler. It makes you my equal. Well, I wouldn't quite say that. Well, almost my equal.
1: So that's, <laughs> that's sort of good. that's sort of in vino veritas too that notion yeah. that when the alcohol loosens our lips up so that we can say the truth comment on that
2: Well that's one of the ways we use it so if you look around the world throughout history anytime you've got potentially hostile individuals who need to sit down and either come to an agreement or work past a point of mutual suspicion alcohol is involved. Uh, no one starts talking until you've sat down and had a few rounds to drink. And and so I actually look at the research, there's good research on this, that alcohol is a kind of truth serum. So uh, by downred it, regulating the prefrontal cortex, the, the center of cognitive control, it makes it harder for you to lie. So lying is actually cognitively really demanding task. You've got to keep in mind what you're saying to the other person, which is not true, but also what is really the case. You have to suppress emotional reactions or facial expressions that might correspond to what's really the case instead of what you're saying is the case. It's actually really really complicated and difficult to lie. Um, And it's a prefrontal cortex type of operation. So if you can take that down a few notches, you make it harder for people to lie. Um, You're also increasing another function of alcohol is to boost, at least in the early stages, feel-good hormones. So serotonin, endorphins, and so it's making you more expansive. It's making you like it's making you like yourself more. You're, you're more impressed with yourself. You're more clever. You're more uh, handsome and charming, uh, but you're also seeing other people in a more positive light. So it's it's also boosting kind of bonding type hormones in humans that that help us to move past these these potential disagreements
1: or or distrust. So I want to get back to that thing you were talking about before, about the the kind of expansive nature of it, also cognitively, that uh, it may allow us to move. Well, you know, Thomas Kuhn in in The Structure of Scientific Revolution says that you know, and, and we often pursue consensus for long periods of time. And then there's this big upshot, you know, this paradigm shift. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so the suggestion here is that that maybe that paradigm shift happens because somebody can think in a way that isn't dictated by consensus. You're suggesting that alcohol can contribute to this. I, I, prior to reading your book, I would not have guessed that the world, world of computer coding in any way could have benefited. <laughs> it seems like something you'd need to get done before you had any alcohol. But tell us about the
2: So this is probably what started me thinking about the book was I was giving a talk at Google campus uh, years and years ago about my previous trade book, which was about basically spontaneity, the power of spontaneity. Mm. I was talking a little bit about spontaneity and creativity. And in the Q&A, the first person raised their hand. They said, oh, have you heard of the Balmer Peak? So this is supposedly uh, Steve Balmer, former CEO of Microsoft, I think it's probably apocryphal story but supposedly he discovered there was this very narrow blood alcohol content level where your coding ability was just supernatural but you needed to stay right there if you got if you shot past it you got bad if you weren't there yet it was bad and so supposedly he would keep himself hooked up to an alcohol iv to just hover exactly at this this blood alcohol level um this is, of course, almost certainly not true. But after after this talk, after the Q and A, they took me on a tour of the campus, and the first place they took me was their whiskey room. So this is this place. It is beautiful. This amazing collection of single malt scotches and beanbag chairs. And they said that they uh, this they use this in a very specific way. So if they are banging their heads against the wall they have a problem that they can't solve, they've been you know, drinking coffee and working on it in a very linear way for a long time, and that's not working, they change their strategy and they go to the whiskey room and start down-regulating their prefrontal cortex and not trying to approach it directly and kind of force a solution, but try to let a solution come. And there's something about that gentle relaxation of cognitive control, probably combined with, uh, you know, starting to feel good, you've got serotonin's pumping, you're relaxed, you're talking to your colleagues in a way maybe you, you wouldn't before you're saying things that maybe you would think was a dumb idea, but you're a little bit buzzed now, so you don't mind saying it. That's how breakthroughs happen. And this is how people at a very successful company doing very demanding tasks, move past uh, barriers, when creativity is what they need to get past it.
1: So, you know, the other thing that is connected to this in a positive way. Uh, is a a kind of sense of community. It's interesting that I think in the last 20, 25 years, there's been this vogue for the idea that the Enlightenment came about partly because of coffee houses, because coffee houses where you could all meet and you have a more rational discussion and people of different social stations would sit around and talk through ideas. And then the next morning, they would remember what was said, which was different from taverns where you tended not to remember what was said. And the longer you talked, the less sense you made anyway. But there is a sense uh, of bonding and of social social ritual that we value. And, and we certainly idealized it on American television. It's probably the same bar that Charles Bukowski's is going to. It just looks a lot nicer. Uh, here's a little kick clip from Cheers. Sammy, I didn't want to say this in front of the others, but you know what I think the most important thing in life is? is love. You want to know what I love? Beer norm? Yeah, I'll have a quick one. You know, Sammy, I love that stool. If there's a heaven, I don't want to go there unless my stool is waiting for me. And I'll tell you what, even God better not be on it. You
4: wouldn't, you wouldn't dare.
1: So the other thing about drinking is, is that it's funny. I mean... Yeah. Uh, my father died of cirrhosis. I still think drinking is funny. But um, there's, there's just a, a way in which it makes us laugh. But there's also that sense that is, I think, spelled out carefully in Cheers. We have to remember that Sam Malone, the guy who owns the bar, is in fact a reformed alcoholic. Uh, mm-hmm. and, but um, there's this sense that this is a place where people can go and everybody knows their name and it's, it's a kind of home. I, I don't know. Uh, react to that. Robin Dunbar is an
2: anthropologist in the UK who's who studies pub culture, British pub culture, and he's got a lot of survey data that shows that people who have a local, so you know, a place like Cheers that they go to every day, have all sorts of measures of well-being that are much higher than people who don't have a local. They're happier. Uh, they're they're more they're physically healthier. Um, they're they're mentally healthier. They live longer. Uh, And it seems to be related to this kind of social support and feeling connected to other people that you get when you have this third space. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. your home. It's not work. It's this place you go to relax and see other people and maybe have um, interactions or uh, encounters that you didn't plan. You know, you just see people from the neighborhood who come in. Um, They seem to be pubs in British culture seem to serve as this kind of glue, social glue. And this is, we've had, you know, similar types of establishments have played the same role in cultures around the world. And and one of the dangerous, you know, I talk in the book about how alcohol has become more dangerous recently. One of the ways in which it's become more dangerous is it's been taken out of that that kind of relaxed social environment and taken into the private home. And when we're sitting home alone drinking, it becomes a very different thing than when we're. We're sitting at the bar, the cheers bar with other people.
1: Yeah, actually, then that may provide us with a pretty good segue into our our next uh, segment, our next conversation. Uh, We should say that Edward uh, Slingerland is going to stay with us. Uh, We're going to add another guest. We're going to talk about how, first of all, about that whole idea, particularly during the pandemic, we drank more at home. We're still drinking more at home. Uh, And how we go about renegotiating our relationship with alcohol if we decide it's not really, we're not in the sweet spot anymore. Anyway, we'll talk to you in just a few seconds. Lots of big money and
0: helping white people dance.
2: I
4: got you in trouble in high school. But college now that was a ball. You had some of the best times.
2: So if it's your first time at Dry Friday's, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us why you're here.
0: Okay, I can go. Um, I'm Jenna, and I got caught drinking a beer in my suite, and it just sucked because it was the night before my 21st birthday. (laughs) Yeah,
2: zero tolerance policy on campus. Uh,
4: What's up, man? Oh, hey, I'm Kenny, and I was pouring vodka into a water bottle in the bathroom, and my RA walked in. Ooh, busted. (laughs) Uh, hi there.
0: Hey, I'm, I'm Courtney. Uh, classic college story, you know. I, I drank 40 beers and got naked and grabbed a chainsaw, went behind Quad and cut down, like, 35 pine trees.
3: <laughs> I've done it, you've done it, but, of course, this time I get caught,
1: right? <laughs> All right. So on Saturday Night Live, they're even talking about renegotiating this relationship, maybe. Um, But uh, here in this segment, we're going to talk again to Edward Slingerland, uh, his book, Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Uh, Also joining us now is Hilary Scheinbaum, a journalist and author of The Dry Challenge, How to Lose the Booze for Dry January, uh, Sober October and Any Other Alcohol-Free Month. Um, Edward Slingerland, let's go back to what we were saying kind of at the beginning. You were saying that in some ways, alcohol, uh, in a very Darwinian sense, may have been able to pay for some of the damage that it causes. That's one of the ways that that it has persisted as a human behavior. Um, But... The damage it causes is significant, and in your book, you just you talk about this: fifteen million adults reported to suffer from various degrees of alcoholism, eighty-eight thousand alcohol-related deaths, an estimated cost of two hundred and forty-nine billion to the economy. I mean, when when alcohol decides to turn against us, it's not fooling around, right?
2: It's not. And I also point out in the book that alcohol has recently become more dangerous than it histor- historically has been. So, relatively recently, we got access to distilled liquors. Uh, so, these really powerful alcoholic beverages that are just orders of magnitude stronger than the relatively weak beers and wines that we've been drinking for most of our, our history with alcohol as a species. So distilled liquors are one problem, but the I think probably the bigger problem is what I call isolation. So historically, we've never had private access to alcohol. If you were going to drink, you drink in a public situation, usually with food, There are ritual regulations about how much you drink, how fast you drink, when you have to stop drinking. Cultures know, we talked earlier about kind of Dionysus as a two-faced god or, you know, benefits and dangers. Cultures know this and they build safeguards around alcohol. When we start drinking at home, when, you know, we can take a case of vodka back to our house and just access it whenever we want, uh, the guardrails are off. And it's a completely different situation when we're drinking alone. And that's become more and more prevalent in modern life, you know, with the spread of the suburbs and market economies. So alcohol is a lot more dangerous now to us than it historically has been.
1: Right. And I would say the pandemic took all that and kind of squared it. I mean, you, yeah, people yeah. were just not out. But yeah, I love there's one detail from your book that in ancient Greece, wine cups were deliberately shallow. So using them without spilling required significant motor control. There's sort of a sense to of how to identify this and maybe uh, throw a lasso around it. So, um, yeah, uh, Hilary Scheinbaum, tell us a little bit about what's going on. There's sort of a movement now. I mean, typically the people who have been sober, uh, the people who practice temperance either do it for religious reasons or because they had a previous existing drinking problem or they just don't like drinking at all or they have a family member with a terrible drinking problem. But there hasn't really typically been a kind of – I don't know, socially approved and socially embraced temperance movement or, or, or semi-temperance movement until recently. Tell us a little bit about what's been going on.
3: Yeah. So as recent as, you know, 2012, um, this movement, you know, started in the UK called Dry January it was started by a woman named Emily Robinson, and it was basically by accident. Um, in fact, she was training for her first half marathon and really decided that she wanted to improve her speed and, you know, get faster. So she gave up alcohol for a month, you know, being the month of January and she realized all these amazing benefits while doing so. Um, at the time she was actually working for a charity in the UK that was, you know, trying to convince people to imbibe less and, the next year, they launched it into a national campaign, and the UK has been celebrating, you know, Dry January ever since. And it certainly has migrated to the US and uh, internationally as well. So it's—I don't know if that necessarily kicked things off, but there has definitely been a lot of people who are giving up alcohol for different months, um, different periods of time, or just deciding to imbibe less year-round for a multitude of reasons.
1: So you say, Hillary, that some of this is a little bit generational, too, that there's a maybe a sense in which Generation Z uh, just was going to drink less than some of its precursors.
3: Yeah, I think that Gen Z um, specifically has been consuming less. I mean, many of them are not of age quite yet either, but even millennials have a, a better, I think, um, I want to say like a different, I shouldn't say better, but a different approach to how they socialize. So while, you know, past generations might have gone to the bar to meet up, I think that, you know, on social media, people are connecting, there isn't a requirement for booze there. And certainly, you know, there are other activities that people are getting involved in that don't require alcohol at all. So, um, you know, and I think that has to do with just having more information about health and realizing every year there's, you know, newer and newer studies that show alcohol is detrimental to different parts of our bodies and our minds. So I think that is, you know, all in consideration.
1: You know, there's one thing that I've wondered about, and it was we were preparing for the show, we discussed it, and I don't think we could ever pin anything down, and I don't expect that you would necessarily have this pinned down either, but you might have a kind of off-the-cuff reaction to it. I've been wondering whether the decriminalization of marijuana and the increasing, you know, access to Uh, products like gummies and stuff like that, uh, may ultimately contribute to this as well. I I speak as somebody who enjoys drinking, but I also find that it just plays havoc with my sleeping, Uh, whereas a gummy kind of allows you to... (laughs) to drift off into some kind of really pleasant place. And I'm sort of wondering maybe some of these younger generations for whom, you know, not that everybody hasn't been smoking pot for a really long time. I get that. But there's a way in which it's a little less dangerous, a little less criminalized. I'm wondering whether that's maybe going to actually put its foot on alcohol a little bit. You
3: know, there's something to be said about that. And to your point, You know, when you drink too much, you obviously have a hangover the next morning. And I know that there was a study that was done in the UK that said about two years, I think it was, that is what the average adult spends, you know, hungover the next morning. Um, And so that's a really long period of time. So even if it's not pot, for example, but if it's CBD gummies that are kind of taking the edge off or other things that aren't as, you know, Stirring up your your morning the next morning. Um, I think that there are definitely more options available. And certainly, you know, if they've been destigmatized, uh, people will definitely go those avenues instead.
1: Yeah. um, And, Edward, one of the things that you write about and I think that we've all seen, there's sort of been a kind of weird normalization of the idea of wine in particular as a coping mechanism for mothers. Uh, So you start hearing about mommy juice and there are all these T-shirts. There's wine moms and vodka aunts and stuff like that, all of which creates, I would assume, another slippery slope uh, for women and their relationship to alcohol.
2: Especially if you're using it alone, if you're using it as a coping mechanism because you you know are stressed out because you're trying to juggle work and childcare, and you know typically it's the case that women are bearing more of the burden still than men in this regard. Um, it's very tempting to turn to that chilled bottle of Chardonnay in the refrigerator um, at the end of the day to help you make that transition. The, the dangerous thing is that it's that you serve yourself from that bottle and you make as many trips back to the refrigerator as you want. Um, and that's I do in the last chapter, I, I look at these movements, uh, sobriety movements that have arisen out of uh, women who found themselves using alcohol too much to cope with using it the way people have used it always as a transition uh, facilitator, an, an easy way to get from work to re- relaxation mode. But doing it in isolation in a way that uh, makes it really unhealthy.
1: Right. I think, you know, I was reading John Seabrook's piece in the New Yorker about uh, giving up alcohol and then discovering now in our, our third segment, we're going to talk to somebody about uh, all the non alcoholic, alcohol free options that are option- that are now available in beer and wine and craft cocktails and stuff like that. But he, among he, mm-hmm. the things, said the thing he missed the most was the Cocktail hour, which was kind of a family tradition in his waspy family, you know, and it is that transitional moment? You know, the workday is over; uh, it's not quite time for dinner yet. Everybody's going to sit around together and, and have their favorite cocktail. Um, but it, it is an area where you can get into trouble. So there's a way, Hillary, in which some of these months—sober October or dry January—they're kind of like circuit breakers, right? Like w- what would happen if you just threw the switch for a month and and didn't drink? Um, what have you found out? I know you, I've done it. Uh, you've done it. What are the benefits?
3: Oh, there are so many. And for me, it usually kicks in between week one and week two. Um, the biggest difference for me was my sleep. So previously, when I was, you know, drinking maybe a couple times a week, having a few cocktails, I was sleeping about five hours a night and felt like that was my normal level of sleep and anxiety because I am a busy New Yorker and I have a lot going on and a lot of on my mind. And simply by just giving up alcohol, I was automatically sleeping seven to eight hours, which historically would have never happened. Um, So that was one major change. And that obviously impacted my mood and my energy levels. And especially in gloomy months like January, you usually don't feel too upbeat, but I was very happy. Um, And also, you know, alcohol dehydrates you. It really can wreak havoc on your skin. And instead of having, you know, parched dry skin, I was, I was glowing, which, you know, for, for many people, um, you know, spending so much on cosmetics and skincare, that's just one easy way that you can, you can really change the, the way that your face looks. Um, another big benefit too, was financial, obviously, especially if you live in a big city where cocktails can be, you know, $15, et cetera, you will be seeing your bank account expand. Um, just by not imbibing. So those are three, but there are certainly many, many more.
1: You know, Edward, one of your pieces of advice, and you've said it several times on the show, and it's certainly there in the book, is don't drink alone. But there's also a way in which uh, I've discovered this. on times when I've, I've gone on the wagon, that the people that I knew that I used to hang around with, who I used to drink with, they don't necessarily like it when you do that i mean you know they they kind of some of them feel a kind of unspoken reproach it's it's a complicated thing to negotiate yeah. with them right
2: yeah that's where you know maybe these new generations of uh, mocktails and um you know now the craft beer movement is actually getting serious about making non-alcoholic beers that taste good so one thing you can do, if you still want to mix with the same people you're mixing with and not be you know, kind of in their face, not drinking by si- sipping your seltzer as they have their pints of beer, you can switch to non-alcoholic beverages that look and ideally taste like alcohol. And not only will that not make the people you're with uncomfortable or feel like you're judging them. You can actually uh, take advantage of the placebo effect so you'll get some some of the effects of alcohol just from the cultural and historical associations you have with being in a bar drinking something that looks like this so that could be a way to kind of uh put work in a circuit breaker period of sobriety without having to give up your your normal social activities
1: of course hillary you point out that um The other way you can do it is recruit a buddy for your non-drinking period.
3: Yes, I surely did, although he did not last the entire month. (laughs) It it definitely made things easier for me for the first two plus weeks um, because I had, you know, a support system and I had somebody there who was also going through the same thing that I was. Um, But, you know, there's always other activities that you can do and take the reins and really plan for your friend group. That don't involve bars or alcohol at all. Um, so that's another point of advice that I have. All
1: right. Well, listen. Uh, first of all, I, I would be remiss if I did not say this. If you or someone you know is struggling with alcohol use disorder or other substance use disorders uh, here in Connecticut, you can call two one one or go on the two one one website for resources. You can also call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's national helpline at one. 1- 800 662 help. That's 1 800 662 4357. And, you know, don't hesitate to do that if you're getting worried about yourself or maybe about somebody else. Uh, So alcohol can be a lot of fun, but uh, you have to have that kind of vigilance. All right. I want to thank – we're going to spend the third segment talking a little bit about some of the things that are, to Edward's point, available uh, if you want to go in that uh, direction. Edward Slingerland, author of Drunk, How We Sip, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization and Hilary Scheinbaum. Thanks very much. I think I'll
2: just get drunk and
1: We are back. We are talking about alcohol. We're gonna, but we're about to talk about the kind of the alcohol-free options. Uh, but first of all, I have to thank Lily Tyson. She is the producer of this episode uh, and has done her usual great job. Cat uh, Pastor is our technical producer. She's the one that's keeping the whole show humming. So thanks very much to both of you. And yeah, now we are going to talk about this. Let's say you decide that either for Dry January or Sober October, or alternatively forever. There's always that. Uh, You're not going to drink alcohol anymore. But you do enjoy certain rituals associated with alcohol. Maybe you enjoy the taste of alcohol. You realize you're probably not going to get exactly that anywhere else. But you might want to try some things that uh, are a little bit more exciting than, I don't know, seltzer. So uh, here to talk to us about that is Elva Ramirez, a journalist, media consultant and the author of Zero Proof Cocktails, 90 Non-Alcoholic Recipes for Mindful Drinking. Welcome to our conversation.
0: Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
1: So, um, yeah, for people who are sober, as or as the term goes now, sober curious, we are in a new era of non-alcoholic beverage options. Uh, so we, I think, maybe sort of covered some of the reasons that that might be happening in the previous segment. But what's your take on that? Why why is this happening right now? Well,
0: you know, it's it's a, the way I like to describe it is that the the lyrics change but the music sort of stays the same so that this to be american is to worry is to drink too much and to be american is to worry about drinking and this is <laughs> this sort of tension that goes back to honestly before the you know when it was the colonies before america was america people have always drunk too much and they've worried that either they are drinking too much of the, or that their neighbor is drinking too much and how that plays out has you know evolved over time but it's but it's more or less the same so in some ways this is not a new phenomenon what what's new is the techniques and the attitudes towards it but in many ways this has been with us for a very long time what's different now is um we're benefiting from a couple different things from the culinary world we're benefiting from um the the popularity of not of um like oat milk for example and the vegan and gluten-free movement um means that the consumer is just smarter about what they want. They want a lot of choices. And it, 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 it's the same thing on in co- in cocktails. People still like cocktails. They like, they like bars, they like the taste of it, but they don't always want to have alcohol. And now there's ways to have those experience without having to give up the ritual of cocktails.
1: Right. Uh, And there are different terms for this. When I've been doing a dry January or anything like that, I often will just say to the bartender, just surprise me, no alcohol, whatever. (laughs) And and that can be kind of fun and they kind of enjoy it too. It turns out it's like nobody ever asked them to do that. So, um, but but there are different terms for this too. And I gather mocktail is falling out of fashion. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. So it's, you know, Bartenders really don't like the phrase because they will point out that mock means both fake and to make fun of. Mm -hmm. But Mocktail in general just has a has a bad reputation, uh, mostly because of um, kind of what came out in the 1980s. But just to backtrack a little bit, Mocktail, according to Merriam-Webster, was actually first appears in 1916, which is just a little bit pre-prohibition. And Fast forward to to the 1980s is when you if you look at um, article databases like Factiva and news reports, mocktail is a word really surges in popularity in the 1980s because there was this movement to try to get people to there's this epidemic of drunk driving, specifically teen teen drunk driving. So there were all these efforts to try to get people to not drink and mocktail contests came out of that. But what happened was in the 1980s, there people were out of touch. The craft cocktail co- um, revolution hadn't happened yet, and so people were really out of touch with the elegance of pre-prohibition and prohibition era um, drinks. And so, what happened in the 1980s is you get a lot of like things that were like ice cream and orgeat and maple and syrup and like ginger ale for some reason. So there were these super creamy sweet confections that no one likes and so when people say mocktails bartenders at least think of that now i come from hospitality so i don't like to um correct people but where, the analogy i make is just like there's disco and then there's dance music mocktail represents a specific era in time with certain production values and so the more contemporary phrase would be zero proof because that represents a way of looking at things using different techniques and making things Differently, and also just having a, a more sense of um, cocktail history,
1: and and so yes, the, the nowadays I'm not a craft beer drinker, so I, I don't. But I, I read Seabrook's article in the New Yorker. I mean, obviously there are a lot of new zero proof craft beers, and 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 it, it, that may have been helped out by the fact that people drink beer here in the craft beer era a lot for taste. I don't think anybody ever really drank Budweiser because it tastes good. You know, I don't know why they drank it, but it wasn't because it tastes good. But if you're pursuing taste, taste is something that can be given back to you in a zero proof formulation. But I'm also kind of amazed by the idea that there is sort of, there's something like called zero proof tequila. How can there be zero proof tequila? Do
0: you mean in terms of just like the production of how they're, I don't know what it,
1: what is it even? Well, you
0: know, you know, what's interesting, like I said, like if you think about like, we the, the the zero proof it really owes a lot to the the plant based food people right all the gluten free oat oat milk all that so the the popularity of that sector is driven by people who are moderates who, who who still have dairy but then they want oat milk in their coffee and it's the same um, phenomena happening in cocktails like I just full disclosure I still drink I, I drink a lot less but I still drink and I like to you know. St- um, switch between the two. And so that is where something like a non-alcoholic um, tequila or not, or a fake gin or an alt, I call them alt spirits. That's where those come in because that way you can still, either whether it's at home or a bar, you can still have the ritual, you can still have the taste, you can still have something that's like a gin and tonic. They tend to have less sugar and less um, calories because they're non-alcoholic, but they're really trying to replicate that feeling, that taste of something really in the same way that oat milk is there to, you know, do have a be a more healthy replacement for um for dairy, for example.
1: Right. So now there are and I read some articles about them. I am actually going to try alcohol free wines. There are apparently some fairly good ones out there. They don't exactly taste like wine and there are more interesting beers available than, say, O'Dules, which was, Mm -hmm. you know, the typical one of choice. And it does seem to me that this, you know, you you just use the word ritual and, and I think it's very hard to get away from that, that so many of our rituals do involve um, uh, something to drink, uh, a libation of some kind. Cat, let's play A4 here. Here's, here's a ritual that seems to cry out for alcohol.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to drag you from your delicious desserts. Uh, there are just one or two little things I feel I should say as best man. This is only the, the second time I've, I've ever been a best man. I... I hope I did the job all right that time. The couple in question are at least still talking to me. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, unfortunately, they're, they're not actually um, talking to each other. The, the, the divorce c- came through a couple of months ago. <laughs> but uh, I'm assured it had absolutely nothing to do with me. Apparently, Paula knew that Piers had slept with her younger sister before I mentioned it in the speech. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the fact that he that with her mother came as a surprise but um i think was incidental to the nightmare of recrimination and um violence that became their two-day marriage anyway enough of that um my job today is to talk about angus and uh, there are no skeletons in his cupboard
1: or so i thought <laughs> So, Elva Ramirez, who doesn't want to have a glass of something in their hand when Hugh Grant is giving his slightly tipsy sounding toast, right?
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you can still have it. I mean, the, the, the good news is that there's a lot of really great brands out there that, that can step in and that are meant to mimic uh, whatever it is that you're holding in your, in your hand. Uh, you mentioned non-alcoholic beers. Is it or Bush? Um, and among many other uh, top beer um, brands are investing heavily in non-alcoholic beers. Um, Heineken uh, Zero, I think it's called, or Heineken 0.1, I forget the exact name, but Heineken has a beer that when it uh, debuted did quite well, as did um, Carlsberg in Germany. So big brands are paying attention to as Diageo um, snapped up, Seedlip, for example. And so I looked something up for you right before coming on. And according to a, a study I found, there were seven. There's an estimated um, 71 non-alcoholic UK and US-based um, brands, and about 23 launched just last year alone. I imagine this number is actually getting a little bit higher. Uh, even I'm having a hard time keeping up with them. And they really range the gamut. There's a lot of new spirits. There's a lot of spirits that are meant to look, They're m- meant to taste like whiskey, but they're all. They're also trying to fill out that back bar. There's um, a brand called Liars, which is L Y R E S. And they started off with things like gin and tequila, but now they have things that are meant to um, taste like Campari or Aperol, um, Amaretto. So, you know, things are getting a lot more filled out in that back bar area. So it's the p- brands are now moving past just, you know, let's have a fake gin, let's have a fake tequila to things that are more like, um, I don't want to say esoteric, but they're not, they're not, the, first, they're not the first guard. We're, we're now starting to get into things like um, Amaro.
1: So, yeah, people who work in the uh, retail area and the distributor area of this industry say this is a growth area for them right now. Uh, it might even be the biggest growth area, adding to the shelves these uh, zero-proof wines and beers and craft cocktails uh, and stuff like that. Although we're almost out of time, but I think it's worth mentioning, to go back to the mocktail thing, you know, most of the things we drink, we drink because we like the taste of them. But there's a way in which so-called adult beverages, at least your first encounter with the campaign. Since you just mentioned it, nobody goes. Wow, that tastes really good! I can't wait to have another one. It it actually kind of part of the whole idea of adult beverages. I think is that they they don't taste good, at least in the way that as a kid you thought things tasted good, right?
0: I completely agree. I I did not like gin for many years, uh, and then that but that was because my palate wasn't ready for it. And now I I, I absolutely adore gin and I love Campari. Um, and it's true. And I think it's just you know your your palate evolves. Um, I. I think, as a grown-up, tend, tend towards things that are more bitter and herbaceous and complex. Uh, that's not where I started. I don't know if that's where anyone really starts. Uh, and so, But these are, these, there's these products that are really trying to give you complexity and sophistication so that you don't feel at any point that you're missing out.
1: All right. Elva Ramirez, a journalist, media consultant, and author of Zero Proof Cocktails, 90 Non-Alcoholic Recipes for Mindful Drinking. Thanks for being with us today.
0: Oh, my God. Thank you for having me.
1: All right. And for the rest of you, thanks for listening today. Thanks to Lily Tyson for making this show up uh, and uh, Kat Pastor for executing this show. And we hope that you have a pleasant cocktail hour tonight. Just, you know, know when to say when, as they say.
2: Some other people